Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, Tuesday night. I'm going to take a look at the Parsha. I'm doing this in honor of my good friends, the Hoffmans, Ed and Robin, uh, who uh, we've shared many adventures lately together. Ed was with me in Vancouver. And then he did that very nice Hanukkah event at his house that impresses everybody every year, even our guests from New York. And the other day we did the uh, did uh, the Ofrof uh, at Shashomri, and um, their honor and, and the memory of the loved ones and of Ed's father, I think it was Arthur Hoffman, I think, and Robbins, uh, the memory should ha- uh, be a blessing. We're looking at, uh, obviously, Parsha Shmos. It's not like you don't know the story, but the story behind the story is always the most interesting part, at least to me. And to cut to the chase, how come everybody became not from in Egypt, right? That's always the interesting part they don't dwell on. The Chazal do, and certain Sukim, because they say, oh, you were in the Memtesh Shari you hit rock bottom until I, God, took you out. And the Rambam famously says, I'm sure everybody knows this, in Hilchus Wada Budazar, I guess, the beginning, that uh, once the Jews went to Egypt, first of all, all the converts fell away and went back into idolatry. And then the Jews did. With the, the Rambam said, with the exception of Sheba Levi, uh, which is interesting because the actors in the story, Moshe and Aaron and his family, they're all from Levi. Um, you don't hear from the other Jews. So what exactly happened? Now, I pointed out in the past that the story itself is is unclear, but very juicy. It says, That the Jews spread all over the place, and although the Hebrew doesn't work, remember we did, I don't want to say this all over again, but it should say, or But it can be, But whatever it is, you get the idea that they spread all over the place, and um, and they part of Yisrael does not mean they all had six babies. No, that's a chazal. That could be true, but the translation of it is paru means they got strong. You know, doesn't mean you know they had uh, extra children. Like I said, it doesn't mean that they didn't. I'm just saying, what's the plain meaning of the posit? And <coughs> we have here a story within a story that the Torah sort of hints at but never comes out straight with. You have a couple of Chazals that fill in the blanks. And basically, they all started out from as, as long as um, Yaakov was alive and as long as Yosef and the brothers were alive. But after they all died, then the kids went off to Derech. I'm not going to read you again that I do every year, that Medish near the beginning of Shmos, where it says they, once Yosef and the brothers died, they stopped doing bris mila, they stopped circumcision. Because they said, Nia commits Rim. We want to be like the Egyptians. And Egyptians, the laity, are not circumcised. And the result was a wave of anti-Semitism. I happen to remember this medrash. I don't know why. 
that God converted the positive feelings the Egyptians had uh, entertained towards them until then into negative feelings, and then started the downfall and the slavery. So notice, as long as they're there's a chazal. So as long as they're from and they kind of kept to themselves, so uh, they prospered. I mean, who says you have to go to the country club? You understand? Know who says you have to go to this and this uh, restaurant? It's not even kosher. What do you want to go there for? Uh, who says you have to go to the same ball game? Even if you live by yourself with your own community in your own neighborhood, as long as you have your 25-room house and your 15 cars and your swimming pool, what do you, you know, the gas electric works? I mean, you know, well, what's your problem? You know what I'm saying? Goshen could have been a gilded ghetto. Uh, Jews have often lived in such circumstances. Uh, they do now. What do they call them now? Uh, you know, Tom's River and, uh, I don't know, Muncie and all the other boys, Teaneck and so forth. You know, uh, gilded ghettos. And they're not bothering anybody. But that's not what happened to our Ovos. Instead, they moved all over the place. And uh, you start, and uh, they came rich. And uh, no, they moved, in other words, what's the right word you use nowadays? They diversified. They started all being in cattle and sheep, and then they diversified. Because that's what a smart person does when you get into business. And Egypt was a land full of commodities and all kind of other stuff like that. And indeed, we know from history that Egypt was always tremendous entrepot uh, of goods coming in and out uh, from Egypt to the rest of the world and vice versa. So the idea of trade and commerce and import-export was gewaldic. And you can make a buck. You understand? That's what the Jews did. But of course, this brought took them down and they assimilated. And when I say assimilate, let's be clear. When they say the Memtesh, Shari Tumen, that means the Jews worshipped idols. Okay? And worse, they believed in them. Does that mean they disbelieved in Hashem? I didn't say that. But their belief in Hashem was all screwed up. Because if you can worship idols, and at the same time say you believe in Hashem, you obviously don't know what Hashem is. And I'm sure that was the case over there. Which is the conversation that Moses has with God at the burning bush? What name should I give me? He says, hey, Yashar, hey, you know. Because they're going to ask me, what's the name? And hey, uh, Yashar, is a hard one. Like the Rambam says, it's the Shem Forish and so forth. And he has to introduce him to the idea, which you know Moshe didn't know. How could he know at that point? And it doesn't. Look, and the other Jews didn't know. Maybe a few knew, and maybe I don't know. It's not even clear to all of us totally. And that is God as the you know uh, as uh, that would like I say that which created even existence along with everything else. So that's a hard way of op- of thinking. Uh, that was a, a heavy one. You know they thought of gods as being part of the universe. And they didn't think it through so much, like, are they, is it older than the universe? Did God create the universe? Was he part of the universe? Once you believe in idols, you kind of think of the deities as having a superior existence within a pre-existing universe. And here you have to say, no, Brazier's world, he missed the Arts, which book was not written at that time. <laughs> didn't do a little like that. And uh, that's the A.S.R.A. Take a look, if you're interested, in the Meshachachma. He kind of, you know, goes into this. Uh, not exactly the way I'm saying it, but it, but that's what I take him to mean. You know, when he talks about God's conversation with the uh, the Ayasharia, because Moshe said, "What name should I give him?" No, there's the Jews. All they know is this was the God of their ancestors. So you always have a certain amount of respect for your ancestral heritage. But that's what I mean. You believe in this, you know, and you have a passion and all the rest of it. You know, a kesher with their bunshulim, like they talk about today. Uh, and, you know, it wasn't easy. Let's put it this way. It wasn't easy to get across. It wasn't even from Moshe Rabbeinu. Okay? 
And um, where is it over here? Uh, uh, somewhere in Shemos. I remember seeing it. Here it is. Right? God told him, hey, he's talking about the, 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 what you and I call existence. And this had not been revealed to the Abbas, this name of Eya, Yudke Bavke, had not been revealed um, to the Abbas when they were alive. And um, in other words, it's taking Moses to the Maimonidean philosophical level, which is not false, which is not false. It's just hard to wrap your, your head around. You know, I've said it many times. Moses looking at a burning bush and God saying, well, I'm not the burning bush, really. It's just something I'm doing. You know, so what are you? Actually, if you want to get down to it, I'm indescribable. Oh, so we have a word for you, indescribable. No, that word doesn't work either. But I'm just trying to give you a a, 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 a stickle idea of what I am because you can't know who I am. And later on, this is a, uh, encapsulated, as we all know, when on Mount Sinai, Moses said, let me see your face. And God said, you cannot see my face. So it sounds like until then, Moshe thought that if he goes high enough on Madrego, Sooner or later, we'll be able to see God's face, which means he didn't cop until then that you can't. It took Hashem to say, Lo I'm such a nature that I don't even have a nature. I created nature, you know, all that philosophical stuff. Um, so understand, it's a work in progress. I always say the story of Shmos is many things. One of the themes, one of them is the evolution of the education of Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe, the beginning of the book of Shmos is not the same Moshe at the end. He's grown in understanding, uh, you know, incredibly. So we're, we're only at the very beginning of the story. Now, the question that interests me is, so why did everybody go off the dirt? Let's put it this way. Egypt was a major civilization, you know, like America at that time, and therefore it had a cu- culture that's attractive. So that's first of all. You're not going to be living on a bunch of roofs and hicks and uh, illiterates and that sort of thing, because then you feel yourself superior. You don't want to go and, uh, you know, imitate their culture. Although Jews have done that also, uh, which shows you how stupid they are. But in Egypt, you're dealing with a, a, a much higher culture. It's a strange culture to you and I today, but as you know, it was very uh, way back then, 3,000 years ago. Okay? One of the great ancient cultures. There are people that like Egyptian motifs and things. I don't, but you know, but but there, I know there are people, plenty of people that do. Okay, so Yaakov already was worried. That's why, you know, back in Vayigash, I think, when we case, God appears to him and says, don't worry, I'll take you in the Egypt, I'll, I'll get you out also. Because Yaakov's afraid, what's going to happen when my kids get to a country like Egypt? And how are you going to keep the boys away from the girls and the girls from the boys? And, uh, you know, this ritual and that sort of thing. And it's an attractive culture out there. And it was. Now, the only thing we can, uh, let me put it this way. In my opinion, because that's all you ever get, as I say over and over again. In my opinion, the way they set, describe it, Yaakovina comes across as a Litvak and not a Chassid. Because he didn't say, let's set up a Hasidic dynasty and have all that sort of thing. But instead, it, uh, as Yehuda Shal Lefan of Goshna, Lahoris Lefan of Goshen, they send Yehuda to set up a base Talmud. So now it's Yeshiva. Uh, this is, uh, we all heard that. So what does that mean? Yaakov, before he goes to Egypt and settles there, sends his son, set up a Torah Mitzvah network. Okay, based on Talmud. I mean, I get it. I've said a thousand times. 
the story of American Jewry is that first came the masses and only much later came the, the day schools. If it would have been the other way around, if you would have had a network of day schools such as we have today or something similar uh, in the 1880s, 1890s, the face of American Jewry would look very different. You would at least, at the very, very least, have twice and three times as many from Jews as you have and possibly more. So in the case of Yaakov, he sent Yehuda to set up a yeshiva. I don't know exactly what that means. What's a yeshiva before there was a Gemara and all the rest of it. But, you know, they had some kind of Yiddishkeit center. And Yehuda runs it, apparently. And uh, the idea is push it. Like I say, very Lidvish. You can live in Egypt, but the main thing should be learning. And if you are able to inculcate that attitude, that's what it seems to me. I'm just telling you the way I understand it. If you're able to inculcate that attitude to your children and then their children and then their children after them and next generation, next generation, next generation, they will be able to withstand the pressures of assimilation. So like in America today, you know, you can have a guy from well-to-do family, um, but he wants his kids to be from, and so, you know, he'll send them, he'll, he'll do his best, father and mother will do their best to find the yeshiva or something like that that'll work for the kid. They fully expect him to grow up and one day be rich like themselves. But they don't want him to go off the derech. And so, you know, they find him a base of Talmud, as we say. And the idea is that the learning that he does, learning Gemara and so forth, will be like a certain, uh, like a shot in the arm, like antidote against the temptations of assimilation and so forth. Because our consumer society is so tempting and constantly pulling on you like an undertow. And, you know, but if you're grounded in learning, this is what we say. This is the philosophy of the literature system. If you're grounded in learning and you have your daily Seder and all that sort of thing, and if you really are Machshito, really, 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 not just say it, but you mean it, then you won't go off. So it sounds like, you know, this is a Chazal Vort, that's the Yehuda Shach Lafan of they sent Yehuda to set up base of Talmud. So the idea was that when the Jews, the 70 Nefashas, plus all those Gerim, come to Egypt, they will have, as we would say today, a network of Chinuch. Okay? Now, does that work or not? Does that work? Uh, first of all, it's a running question whether it's anachronistic or not. I mean, did they have Gemara and things like that in the time of Yaakovina? It's, it's very hard to tell. Um, not necessarily our Gemara, but when they say Yaakov was learning Egla Rufa, I mean, they were from Soto, you know, like, like what, what exactly was there? It's a fundamental question. What, who were the others? Or what were the B'nai Yisrael in Egypt before giving it a Torah, before you see it's Mitzrayim? Uh, hold on one second. All right, sorry about that. I got a wedding coming up. Um, so what was I saying? What would exactly was the status of the Elvis in Egypt? Uh, perhaps you know that this is the first of the Prussian Drachim. In other words, if you're into that way of thinking and you like the system of halachic drush, uh, whether it conforms to historical reality or not, but let's let's for the moment put that aside and assume that it does. So um, the very first... Uh, Process Drachim is what was the story with the Elvis before Mount and Torah? Did they have a din of, of B'nai Noach? 
or Bnei Yisroel, it was a Bnei Yisroel Chumra Lekula, or Bnei Noch Lekula Chumra. Uh, it's a very, very famous uh, discussion in the uh, thing. He does it in his in his particular style, which you go over, under, around, and through all the different Yedamidrashim and Mforshim and so on and so forth. If you don't have the patience to read through all that, you can get the new dumbbell-friendly uh, Mishal Melech, because the Prussian Drachim is a Mishmelach, called Kovin Melachim Chakar Dover, which there were two guys in Israel, whatever the name was, put out. And it really is a very good, it's the kind of thing I like. Uh, it's a dumbbell friendly Mishmelach. And in the back, I'm looking here on Sadi Gimel, or, or page 210, he has a short, an abbreviated, because I know the Prussian Drachim, but he has an abbreviated thing, I'm telling for you, uh, two or three pages. Crunching it together, that were the others. <coughs> did they add one to the mitzvah b'nei noch? But they were b'nei noch, or were they run? So that is to say, they ran by the shem mitzvah plus a few more things like mila, for example, or were they no longer b'nei noch at all, and their entire status? Was that beneath rope? You know this, and I notice when they come up with the question, how could Yaakov marry two sisters, and all that kind of stuff, right? I'm just saying that he has this all, um, what's the right word, in a precy, in an abbreviated, like a Reader's Digest kind of form, which is very cool. You can check it back and forth. Uh, so that would be Nogea asking, you know, what would, if Yehuda establish a yeshiva or something like that in Egypt prior to the arrival of the others and assuming that that institution lasted, what was it? Are you learning Hilchus B'nai Noach? Are you learning something else? Who knows? The Rambam, I don't know if you know this or not, if you ever check out the Rambam Hilchus Malachim chapter 9, uh, he gives his version, his narrative of history in terms of the Shem B'nai Noach. Um... Uh, the Rambam says again, this is the beginning of chapter nine in Hilchas Malachim. Listen closely. Al Shisha Dvarim Nitzav Adam Rishon, that Adam Rishon had six mitzvahs. Avodazara Berchas Hashem Shvichas Tamim Gilarayas Gezel Dinim. Right. Afal Pishikum Him Kabal Biyodinim Moshe Rabbeinu. Even though the Rambam, who's writing this in Mishnah Torah, says it's a Jewish audience. Right. It's a Jewish audience. So he says, you and I do it not because it's Bnei Noach. But because we got in Har Sinai, okay. Uh Das Notelhem and they and and they kind of logical anyway. I mean, uh, you know, uh Gezel Dinim, things like that. It should be logical anyway. Every society has some form of those kinds of things. Uh Elu But nevertheless, you know, they were specifically Autumn Rishon was specifically commanded, the Ramam says, about these things. Uh, but then, over the course of the book of Bracious, as we would call today, uh, other mitzvahs were added. Okay? So, notice, is by Noah, because before Noah, it was veggies. So, there was no such thing as eating animals. That only happened after the flood. So, along with the permission to eat animals, came to survive Menachai. All I'm trying to say, the Rambam is pointing out, is that when you and I talk about Shem Mitzvah Noach, it was six plus one. Six for the first millennium or whatever, how long it was, 
and then the second was after the flood. So um, it's Lav Davka that Adam Rishon was told six things, and that's the end of it. Not at all. There's always room for jello. You know, you can always add more. And there were these seven mitzvahs up to the coming of Abraham. And Avram added, so to speak, if you wish to look at it this way, an eighth mitzvah, not for old B'nai Noach, but for himself. And that was bris milah. God told him to do that, as you know. But who is Paul Shachris? And by tradition, they say, the Avram invented Shachris. I don't know if the Rama means over here, you know, Mamesh, uh, you know what I mean. Um, a din of, of davening chakras, because that certainly was not there, but a concept of, let's say, daily prayer, something to that effect. <laughs> Excuse me. And, um, uh, then, well, I got a cold. Uh, and then it goes on to say, Yitzhak Hifrish Meiser. And then when Yitzhak came along, another mitzvah popped up called Meiser. And Yitzchak, as we all know, invented Mincha. The Yaakov, Hosef, get Anosha. Vizpal Arvis. So each one of these Arvis in the Rambam scheme added a ritualistic um, mitzvah and then a davening. Uva Mitzrayim, now listen very closely. Uva Mitzrayim, Nitzdava Amram, B'Mitzvah Yiseris. That's very um, enigmatic. That in Egypt, Amram, the father of Moses was commanded mitzvahs yeseros, other mitzvahs. Until Moshe Rabbeinu came along and finished the job, he completed the Torah. Until, no, until it came to the magic number of 613. Let's use that number. <coughs> so it was 6, then it was 7, then it was like 10, then it was like 12, and then 13, 14, 15, 16, something like that. And then when Moshe came along, there's a whole lot more until you get to 613. That's the way. The Rambam evolves the scheme. It looks like a certain evolution, you might say, with more mitzvahs adding along the way. So maybe that's what they did in the base Talmud. I, mean, I don't know. You know, uh, doesn't seem there's no, enough material to go that way. But okay. Now, on the other hand, if you say as many Agadites do say that you know Avram kept all the mitzvahs and that uh, Yosef was learning Eglarufa. And, you know, other stuff like that, that you're familiar with from Rashi, you know, and from when you're kids. Well, then you're saying, even the Torah wasn't given, but they were starting to get any in spite of that. Okay? Now, here's the point. I just told you, this is a very litvish type approach. You give them a chinuch, especially a solid chinuch, and how to learn. And, you know, and then they'll be able to go out in the world of business and not succumb to the temptations. First of all, that's not true. But second, because we see it around us. Let's 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 stipulate and say most of the time that works. It didn't work in Egypt. That's all I can tell you. If eleven out of twelve tribes or twelve out of thirteen tribes went off the derech, and only one tribe, as the Rambam says, stay from, I mean, one out of thirteen plus is not great. Twelve out of thirteen minus. I mean, that's pretty bad. You understand? Now. Obviously, I, me, myself, and I am underestimating the allure of Egyptian culture and all the rest. I get that. You know, I, I, that could be. But nevertheless, whatever was set up didn't work, which is very striking. Because the result is, as I said in the podcast yesterday, you have this interesting model of the Jewish people in Egypt constituting two teams. Right? The Jewish people in Egypt 
constituting two teams. On the one hand, you have the team of uh, Levi. On the other hand, you have the team of the 11 tribes or 12 tribes. Sort of like today. You have the Orthodox Jews that keep the mitzvahs or try to. And then you have all the others <laughs> that don't. Uh, a very interesting kind of model. Uh, nostalgia they had, which is why God tells Moses at the burning bush, tell him the God of your fathers appeared to them. Don't know what that means. You know, that they'll recognize. You don't have to give them all this business I told you about and all this other kind, you know, that'll come later. But uh, you know, uh, you guys heard that your ancestor Yaakov escaped Loman. You heard that your ancestor Abraham was successful in his war with Tarlomer, etc., etc., etc. You know, that's the God we're talking about. To 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 fully understand him and his existence and how ba- basically ain't owed Milvada, I mean, that was a, a, a challenge. But, you know, that was a challenge that they faced at that time. The idea of ain't owed Milvado, that you don't have to worry about all the other gods in Egypt, they don't exist. He said, but look at all the temples and the monuments and all the Kishib and all the rest of it. I care, I get it, I get it, but the whole thing's baloney. You know, usually when you see an entire civilization of baloney, you know what they say was the first sign of being a nut is if you see everybody else in the room is nuts and I'm the only uh, non, no, I'm the only sane person in the room. Once in a blue moon is true. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Once in a while that's actually true. What can I tell you? You know, you might go into a room with insane people and you might be the only one not. You, I, I get it that usually it's a sign that you're like kind of self-possessed and self-centered and, you know, you're a little crazy yourself, but not necessarily so. Okay, and so we end up w- w- with the following observation: the chinuch business, which we always tout today, and which has worked to whatever degree it works. Um, that's true nowadays, uh, but not fully. Our schools and yeshivas and all that, you know, I hope they're not one out of thirteen. But they're not 13 out of 13, okay? There are a lot of kids that, for one reason or another, either drop out physically or drop out mentally. They go through the system and drop out mentally. Uh, because base time doesn't work for everybody. That's what that's what it boils down to. Some kids don't have a head for learning, and Isaiah Gage does. You know, some kids will be turned off when you try to um, try to force them into, in, into a rut that, that doesn't fit them. And a lot of times, I observe... Kids get very depressed because they can't meet the expectations that are put on them. And if you fail in the Gemara thing, you consider like a dumbbell or something like that, and like inferior goods, and you're not. It's just you're a little different, that's all. Uh, and I think this message comes out very interestingly in, in, in the Parsha, in the story. Because, again, going by the Rambam, uh, the Shaver Lab is the only one that stayed, you know, uh, a true blue. And, and, uh, you know, um, how should I put it? Uh, the Shavit Levi is the only one who didn't end up being slaves, according to the story anyway, that they weren't tempted to go into the uh, bricklaying business the way the other brothers were. You know that story in the matters. Uh, in other words, you know, Paro said work for a day for free, and then he said that that's the uh, amount that you have to do forever. Uh which may be a directly true story. I mean, it's very plausible. Or else it's it's a paradigm story, meaning Pharaoh lured them into participation in the economy, you know, building the bricks and all the rest of it. Uh, 
And then once he got them in, they were mentally enslaved. Uh, who knows? You know, uh, it seems it was a physical thing, but it might it might have started out one way and degenerated another way. It, it's so obscure the actual facts; it's hard for us to, to to grasp it. Different uh, uh, chazals and different rishonim and certainly achronim, you know, each one paints a different scenario. It seems to me, but the learning didn't work for everybody. Okay, um, and you know, just have a base of Talmud, even if you rush yeshiva. Is Yehuda ben Yankov, you know that that works for who it works. It doesn't work for everybody, and they had to, uh, you know, figure out some other way. Then a shevet Levi seems like they put their minds that they naturally took to it. I mean, that's what it sounds like. It's hard to hear because usually in any crowd, some of the kids will be attracted to it, and some of the other kids not, even siblings. But let's give it for what it is, and say the shevet Levi was unusual, and a very large number of people that were, as we would say today, into learning. But not Ruvain and Shimon and Yisachar Zul and Don Naftali Gadash, you know, and all the rest of it. Uh, that's just very interesting. The nostalgia they had, which is why Elohei Avichem Shlachani Elai Chlemor. But, uh, you know, the, the simply to say, because they went to Yeshiva, therefore I have no temptations. I'm not tempted by the things of society. I mean, that doesn't work today. There are plenty of kids that will go to Yeshiva, they put in their time. And then they go out to the world of business or something like that, and and they're masliach, and uh, you know the, the and the learning what's ever left over from learning was nothing. You, you understand? They might say at least they were socialized into wanting to stay part of from community. I get that. You know, I understand that. But uh, you know the main goal, I think, wasn't really met. Uh, so uh, they didn't evolve. The right system to hold everybody in long, long ago. Think well. Think about this. After the Avos died, I mean, and, and the brothers all died, had the uh, Yeshiva of Yehuda, the base Talmud, or whatever they had over there, if it would have been successful, then when Pharaoh said, build me the bricks for one day for free, you know, uh, for, for, for wages, they wouldn't have been tempted to do it. The way the Shevet Levi was not tempted to do it. Then the Jews would have ducked a bullet and they would have remained in Egypt and never be enslaved. However, um, you know, uh, assuming that they never would be seduced by any other parts of Egyptian <coughs> civilization. And who knows? But uh, it didn't turn out that way. And so thousands and thousands of years ago, we have this interesting paradigm where how do you survive Jewishly in the Gullahs? It's not a question of money because they were in Goshen and money they had. It's a question, like I said before, do you want to have Jewish grandchildren? You know, you know, how, how are you going to keep them when they stay within the fold? It is a fact, and I, I'm going to have to speak about this later somewhere, later this weekend. It is a fact that they maintain the family unit. That's what we're told, and that's remarkable. The husband, wife, and all the rest of it. But we're not told how. Uh, so these are just basic thoughts that should occur to everybody. Uh, you know, when they read the Parshish Muslim the beginning of the long story. And the the different reactions are funny to me, not funny, interesting, because who are the main people to get involved? It's Moshe and Aaron. Moshe is a BT. Aaron is an FFB. That's that's how it worked out. Aaron never was enslaved, etc., etc. And uh, he was Arab. Moshe had a completely different destiny, 
because as a ba baby he was picked up by Aishas, uh, I mean by Baspara, excuse me, and we all know that whole story. And as I've said many times in the past, you don't know exactly what happened. Was Moses raised in Pharaoh's household and had a Gaish education? Was he raised by his mother, you know, until the age of three or something like that? Then he had a Jewish education. This Panim Lakan and Panim Lakan. But the Pashup shot is Moshe did, had the non-Jewish education. And Vayarva, civil of Psalm, he went and discovered his Jewish identity when he went out to see the sufferings of the Hebrew slaves. Uh, but they're both Levies, except there are two types of Levies. There's the FFB and the BT. Hey, there's a lot to talk about this, but I don't want to go too long. I already have. So I'll just conclude by pointing these factors out and check them out as you look through the parsha and keep this in mind, keep the questions in mind. Again, I want to say that I was uh, dedicating tonight's uh, podcast to our good friends, the Hoffmans, Dan and Robin, and thank you for all the things they've done for us lately, and we should all celebrate many simplest together in the future. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.